Hey everyone, it's uh, Nicholas Larmer here, and I'm with my co-host Gabriel Krauser. Gabriel, how are you this fine Friday? Howdy, howdy, and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. Yes. Under uh, a low tree, in this case. I'm, so if you hear bird sounds in the background, once again, my apologies. Because some of us are lucky enough to be out in the wilderness instead of locked in the, the hell of suburbia. <laughs> in the, I'll be back, great you worry. I'm going uh, back to Joburg, Nick. Ah, uh, damn it. Anyway... Uh, so this week, uh, I mean, I'm, I, I think I'm still about as grumpy as I was last week, which is, uh, which is strange. Um, and yeah. it's mostly about the same things, because uh, I'm yeah. usually a sort of fairly cherry fella. How are you, Gabriel? How's your mental state? No, this is uh, Two Crickets in a thorn, thorn Tree, Grumpy Edition Part 2. <laughs> We're going to be whinging about things. We're going to be fighting about things. And the first thing is I want to talk about... It's, a, it's an old favorite, and it's one that anyone who's followed politics for the past few years is very uh, bored of. But we should probably talk about it anyway, which is how everything in the universe revolves around Donald Trump for some reason. Everything. Jesus Christ, and it's the truth. We, we, yeah. we talked about, uh, what's it, the $5 term you came up with, uh, epistemic magnetism, which is where like everything yeah. tends towards revolving around a central point. And... You know, we've we've just had a fresh ver- a fresh episode of this very long running show, uh, where Trump decided, in the questions and answer session of one of his media uh, briefings, to well, he decided to to suggest some avenues that might provide fruitful returns on COVID treatments. Um, they included uh, uh, shining ultraviolet lights inside of the body. Um, <laughs> Uh, mass x-rays, yeah, yeah. mass x-rays, uh, then uh, finding a way to safely inject disinfectant into people's lungs or clean them from the inside. Nick, um, I don't think you're doing justice here. I think you need to read Trump's quote. Okay. All right, I'll do it. <laughs> I've just read it so many times to so many people because it's so good. All right. So supposing we hit the body with a tremendous whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. And then he turns to his chief medical advisor, uh, Dr. Deborah uh, Burks, uh, and says, and I think you said it hasn't been checked, but you're going to test it. And then I said, uh, supposing you brought the light inside of the body, which you can do either through the skin or some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that too. Sounds interesting. And then I see the disinfected where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that by injection inside or almost a cleaning? So that would be interesting to check. And then Trump points to his head and says, I'm not a doctor, but I'm like a person that has a good you-know-what. Then he turns to Dr. Burks again <laughs> and says, uh, have you ever heard of uh, the heat and the light being used to treat coronavirus? Dr. Burks says, um, not as a treatment. I mean, certainly fever is a good thing. When you have a fever, it helps your body respond. But I've never seen heat or light. And then Trump says, I think it's a great thing to look at. So, <laughs> and then the camera pans back to her and she looks exactly like one of those characters from Arrested Development whose inner monologue is dim, diddly, dim, diddly, dim, diddly, dim, like eerie circus music. She's having, on. yeah, she's having a, she's having an awkward time because uh, she doesn't really want to have an argument with the president who's her boss on national television. Um, but at the same time, he's going, shall we say, a bit beyond the bounds of orthodox medicine. 
Yeah, no, I mean, he has not yet. I'm waiting for him to say, I heard in South Africa that there are these Sangomas that have <laughs> done wonders with, like, enlarging men's uh, uh, reproductive organs. And <laughs> if they can do that, surely they can cure the virus. So, so of course... How did uh, a lot of the uh, the media, especially the Trump hostile media, report this? They reported it as Donald Trump tells people to inject their lungs with disinfectant and bleach. <laughs> Which is just as hilarious and stupid. Amazing. It's, it's, it's amazing because, like, he, he, he made a fool of himself, and yet the story couldn't just be told. It, 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 and, and when I say the media, I mean not so much the news report, because what happens is the way these processes always work is Trump says something wacky. The news reports it verbatim, but the headline is a bit, uh, uh, shall we say, an explosive version or an explosive interpretation of what he said. And then talking heads on TV, radio and Twitter warp the headline not reading the article and the actual quotes into something like far more extreme than the silly thing he originally said uh and this yeah. happens over and over and over again my I, I call sort of in my mind the ultimate trump story goes something like this um uh, some journalists ask him on the white house lawn while the helicopter's buzzing loudly in the background uh you know are you going to give up power if you lose the next election and then Trump says something like, I don't know about that, okay? I don't want to say I don't make predictions for the future. But what I can tell you is that I'm bringing jobs. I'm bringing great wealth and prosperity. Uh, unlike that French president, Macron. Macron is weak. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's making France very poor. And then he goes into the helicopter and the headline reads, Trump refuses to give up power. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and it has made politics really stupid. I was listening to... Um, a podcast with uh, two two American writers I like, and they talked about how um, and then you've mentioned this before, Gabriel, where people believe something they know is kind of not true, but they pretend to believe it so that it can be used as a sort of club. Uh, yeah. So a lot of people will kind of say they believe that Donald Trump is Hitler, but they don't really believe it because then when it comes time for a pandemic, they're all demanding that he seize executive power and force the entire economy to do exactly as he says. Uh, you know, like Hitler. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I mean, I do think it's uh, I. It is kind of it's kind of hard to understand how so many smart people that seem to be so well incentivized by the market of attention to be serious end up being so stupid. So what do I mean? I mean, like, if you're a news organization, there's a very strong incentive to report factually, to report soberly, to report highly critically where something is done wrong and not to exaggerate it and so kind of end up undermining the criticism. And that incentive comes from the fact that usually you'd expect if uh, a publication delivers bad reporting, then some people are going to be fooled in the moment. But then when that gets fact-checked and debunked by competing organizations, people are going to be like, this is a problem. This is a nightmare. Uh, we need to stop reading uh, the New York Times and, and watching CNN because Washington Post and uh, CNBC have both showed that those other publications have been doing a bad job. So you should expect market share to go in favor of the news organizations that are the most serious. 
but it doesn't end up working like that. Well, in some cases, and... it, it sort of does a little bit. I mean, for example, CNN, right, which has taken an incredibly, of all the American news network, it's probably taken the most anti-Trump line. And he hates them the most as well. He's the most anti-CNN president ever. Um, but it's not doing great. Uh, it's sort of losing out to most other players in the market, not just um, Fox News, but also uh, ABC and uh, MSNBC as well, I believe, at this point. Right. But so losing to MSNBC, I wonder if that's because CNN tries to dress itself up as a centrist publication. That that's, happens that's to be... That's probably something to do with it. Yeah. So I think I just want to I just want to give like some some background conditions that kind of undermine this. One of them was noticed by this guy Hans Weinger, a, a philosopher, a French German philosopher in the 19th century, and he wrote this book, *De Philosophie of Als Op*, the philosophy of as if. And his argument was that that a lot of the thinking we do is idealized thinking, is as if thinking. And he meant this like in very serious ways. In the 19th century, there were a lot of developments in physics and chemistry and mathematics in economics. And they all rest on these like untrue or blatantly absurd assumptions. A lot of maths depends on the square root of negative one that was done. That doesn't make sense. A lot of physics depended on the thought that there were point masses, which there can't be. And then by... The time Weing is writing, people are already starting to think about mass and energy as being similar forms of each other, and Smach is thinking about it. That seems crazy. As we get into quantum physics, which comes afterwards, where you're told that a thing both is and is not, and it's just everything is just a chance. There is no such thing as stuff. Like it, that seems like a crazy assumption, but it's a great assumption, which if you speak as if it's true, you can do much more accurate calculations at both the micro and micro level and the massive cosmic level. Uh, in economics, we assume that people are rational automatons to, to map out supply and demand curves, even though we know that humans are much more complicated than that. So this as-if thinking is this interesting question of like, okay, it turns out it's very useful in a lot of very serious scientific pursuits. Why are we so good at it? Like if we, like, what is it about us? And there steps in some really interesting work in clinical psychology, child psychology in the mid 20th century up until today, which has shown that there are a lot of different kinds of games that kids will pick up without explaining the rules. If you just start playing, they'll play along. And like a really nice example used by uh, my uh, former uh, Princeton uh, professor, Sarah Jane Leslie, uh, was and picked up by Kwame Anthony Appiah was if you have a child playing uh, uh, mud cakes, the mud cake game where you pretend to be baking, right? And you get little bits of mud, you put them in a fake oven and you bake them and then you bring them out. Now children, if you play the mud baking game with them, a lot of children don't need to have it explained to them. You'll, you just say we're making cakes and you act as if it's a cake and then they get excited and they help you make the cake and they put it in the oven and they take it out and they go ooh hot and they blow on it and they carry it very carefully and they'll cut it very carefully with a fork and knife and then feed it to the little toy animals that are eating the cake but you'll notice that they won't try and eat the cake themselves so they're acting as if it's a cake for some purposes but they're not acting as if it's a cake for all purposes namely like do I really want to eat this right so you do this big sing-along and 
dance about treating this thing like it's a cake. But if you really thought it was a cake, then you'd eat it. And the same thing has been going, like the, the, the archetypal phrase of, of theater, I think since the 17th century, was suspension of disbelief. Charles Lamb, I think, coined the phrase. And the thought is when you go into a play, at some level you act as if Othello is killing Desdemona, it, it gets your emotions going, it gets you very worried, it might get you crying, it might get you freaked out and angry, but you don't act as if it's really true in the sense that if you really saw someone killing someone else, you'd get up and you'd stop it. In the, uh... and what I think is happening in a lot of people's minds, in a lot of the way that people treat the news, is they treat it as a soap opera, they treat it as a play. Even when they don't think they're doing that, they really are, at, as you say, in some levels treating um, this thing very seriously in this idealized form, but not really bringing it home to like uh, uh, the hard facts. Um, and, and I think that the, the, the theater sports of politics very readily play into the same kinds of theater sports that we saw in the Colosseum, the first great theater sports to distract people from genuine uh, uh, management of the forces of power, which is like just the green team, the blue team, and the red team, and they cheer each other on, and they have each other's champions, and they boo against each other, and they all kind of love the game. And it does feel to me like, as, like Donald Trump, more than anyone else, has made politics a game of theater where his opponents and his greatest proponents alike aren't serious about anything other than cheers and booze and having fun having yeah, a in the in the in the sci-fi nerd community uh where we spend an awful amount of time arguing about uh you know how realistic is uh some in some uh, thing that happens in a sci-fi world and the reason that that happens is because sci-fi nerds argue that one of the most important parts of creating emotional investment in a story particularly a very fantastical story uh, is that the suspension of disbelief needs to be maintained. And, uh, you know, suspension of disbelief can be sort of stretched um, if, for example, an, a universe's internal rules are, are broken. So let's say you set up a universe where, uh, you know, people can fly if they do a certain thing. But if they don't do that thing and they're still able to fly, then you break the rules of yeah. that universe and you can pull someone out of the story. So to maintain yeah. someone trapped in this hot box of a, of, a, of a kind of a narrative version of the world, a world that's very easy to understand because this is good and this is bad and there's very little grey and we can get all excited and be activists um, requires that you suspend disbelief and maintain that very aggressively. Yeah, so you've got to set up the rules for understand, for, for, of narrative. How do we understand things? Well, we understand things starting with the thought that Trump is great or starting with the thought that Trump is pure evil. And then all things follow from that. So if he says, like, try out, uh, you know, I'm feeling desperate and I kind of like, I've noticed that dis detergent and UV light does a really good job of killing these things. Can't we try and help that out? Like, the sober thing, I think, to say would be, this is a sign that the, the US president is feeling truly at the end of his tether, very desperate, uh, had hoped that uh, some drugs, hydro, hydroxychloroquine in particular, would yeah. prove very effective. A study just come out showing maybe not. Gilead uh, has been conducting a trial on redisvimir, I can't ever pronounce it properly, that an early 
uh, it, the trial ended early, but it came out not looking good. So stock markets crashed, starting in America, then ricocheting after that into Asia, after that into Europe. I mean, the last 24 hours have been pretty harsh on the stock markets, and it seems like it really is just down to one trial, ended prematurely. And I think the sober reporting would be Gilead scientists have said that this trial is inconclusive. This doesn't show that the drug doesn't work. The hydroxychloroquine thing was never a sure bet, but it was always a kind of Hail Mary. It was always yeah, and the but fact a long shot. And the fact that two little studies have shown, I've looked into those studies, by the way. The, there is clear sample bias in the main study that's being cited by anti-hydroxychloroquine people. Uh, by that, I mean that if you look at the three the three categories, the people who just got the hydroxychloroquine, the people who also got the azir, the, the, the other drug that uh, starts I know what you're talking about. It's the, anti it's the antibiotic component of the thing. Exactly. And then yeah. the third group who gets neither, the first two groups were more overweight. They, were, they had worse blood pressure. They had more breaths per minute, more heartbeats per minute, worse blood pressure. They... And in particular, their nitrogen urea blood levels were like off the charts much higher than the so-called control group. And the whole thought about giving people blood medicine, uh, which malaria is a blood disease, this is trying to treat the blood, is that the is 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 that you know if people's if people are already showing much higher urea nitrogen levels in their blood. That might mean that the virus has already done its bad job at attacking the hemoglobin there and so on. It's a really poor control group. So it's not a conclusive thing against hydro, hydro, uh, 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 quinine, basically. Nor yeah. were any of the studies in favor of it uh, uh, solid either. It's, this has always yeah. been a, a much of a muchness thing. Nor has this been a Donald Trump thing. The French, the Italians, uh, a few other European countries... Uh, uh, been... the uh, this country of Bahrain as well, I think, also has treated people with. Uh, have been heavy proponents of it in China. They've they've been very. They've been like literally thousands of doctors that've been heavy proponents of it. The, the outside of Trump, the, there's a huge universe of debates, both at the scientific level and, and the political and level, yet. and whatever outside of Trump. And yet, yes. because Trump touched it, one study that is got sampling bias on top of another study, which was so tiny, it had like 54 patients a week ago, is enough to tank this thing. So the president comes out and says, try putting sunshine and sunlight detergent in your veins. And it's like, you know, there's enough there to criticize him and to criticize uh, all people who invested too much hope and to criticize all people who naysayers uh, because there's still open questions to be answered. But well, instead, it gets, it gets even like the universe has to choose to either be too, truly for him or truly against him and therefore be truly for the drug or truly against the drug and science be damned and intellectual curiosity be damned and the desperation of doctors trying to test things out and trying to, you know, maybe even placebo people is just like thrown out the window. Because it, it's, it's not really at the stage about lives. It's about some fucking theater play. I beg your pardon for swearing. <laughs> oh damn it that's gonna cause me a problem anyway <laughs> um <laughs> it, it's even stupider than that as well because of course uh the michigan governor uh when trump first tarted uh chloroquine uh looked at basically banning it um uh, the nevada governor who is also an opponent of trump looked at banning it as well um so it's not just weird reporting and biased reporting it's it's actual government policy that has made 
on almost no decision. And of course, I'm sure you remember that that story where um, someone allegedly died after following Trump's advice and taking all the chloroquine. Um, them and their mm. husband drank fish tank cleaner because they misread yeah. the label and thought it was chloroquine. Well, there's actually a bunch of interesting details that have emerged about that story since. Uh, those details include the fact that uh, the woman in question, even though she said that she did this directly after uh, hearing Trump on TV, um, she poured, the, she prepared the drinks for her and her husband. Her husband had died of this. Um, she mixed them with soda. Even though she's much smaller and lighter, she took a much, much smaller dose and received relatively minor symptoms. Uh, she also had charges of uh, domestic abuse against her husband, and she turns out to be a lifelong Democratic activist. So it looks an awful lot like, like yeah. a story that might have actually been allegedly about a murder of her husband where she... Uh, yeah try to pin yeah. the blame on something else and make it look like she was stupid yeah. rather than evil. On everyone's <laughs> favorite book, because if you murder your husband and blame it on Donald Trump, half of America will agree with you and half of America will disagree with you and they won't ask any more questions. They won't need the FBI or anyone to look into it. I mean, there was another one which I did find like, oh man, I have never been the biggest fan. I don't know. I saw this terrible story in the New York Times where they criticized Fox News we're telling people that the disease is not a big deal. And so an old couple went on a cruise and then they caught the virus and then they died of the virus. And oh, yes, Fox I saw News. the story. And the very author of that piece had weeks after Fox News had stopped saying this is no big deal, following Fauci and all kinds of medical experts, including the New York Times at the time who were saying it's no big deal. Weeks later, she was still saying it's no big deal. So it's like personified hypocrisy. That doesn't that story, really matter. That story had another to... problem as well, uh, which yeah. is that the uh, the Fox quote that she was using as as being the thing that motivated the family to take the reckless decisions uh, with regards yes. to coronavirus. Was after they were already? <laughs> yeah, after they were already, they already left. gone. They were already gone. So it's just like it's shameless. It's completely shameless. It is. The thing is, I sympathise with this because I love two things. And maybe this is going to segue us into our, into our next bit. I love the theater. Uh, to me, it is like a religion. When we were at Sicilians together, we both knew a great teacher, Canley Fields, who was a drama teacher. Nicholas did not take yeah. drama. Shame no, I did. Well, his head. not proper drama. I took, I took uh, drama in grade eight and nine. I took drama in grade eight and nine, and I wouldn't have taken it any further because I thought... I mean, all of, the, all of the guys who smoked cigarettes around the corner in grade nine, all of the losers, uh, wanted to take drama because they were like, this is an easy way to get a pass. And I was a nerd at school. I wanted to do really well. But then I did a class with this lady, Callie Fields, in grade nine, and I thought, this is serious. And so I took the class, and she helped reinforce my love of theater, which was born out of watching protest plays in the 90s uh, uh, in the market theater, which was amazing. And oh, look at you, you old hippie. <laughs> <laughs> and and Kelly Fields used to say, uh, you know, a lot of people are Christians. For them, the chapel is their church. I'm a Dionysiac. For me, the theater is my church. This is like a holy spiritual place. And I feel that. And I feel that on this farm here with my nephew and niece who are three and seven years old, when I play with them and they suspend their disbelief and they engage their imaginations to allow a piece of paper and two bits of cardboard to turn into a into a epic cosmic battle between good and evil 
I feel as close as anything ever makes me feel to 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 love and beauty and goodness. Like I really believe that theater sports are precious and amazing and very serious. I believe that without them, life would not be worth living. But to to turn politics into theater sports the way that the way that so many of the world's most respected and most well-funded institutions have been doing is life-threatening. It threatens the fabric of society in a way that ha that has already had and will continue to have tangible consequences. And it you makes know, me very worried. I naively thought at the beginning of this virus crisis, as it became apparent that uh, you know it was going to be a very big deal, um, that it wouldn't unite us because obviously uh, I thought there were very different opinions on how to proceed but I thought that it would reduce some of the stupidity the just rank stupidity going on in the world's elite media and political circles and uh, well <laughs> that dream is dead yeah yeah I mean my, my theory I had a very similar theory to you on that because I remember discussing this I uh, one of my favorite pieces from the New Yorker pointed out uh, and the Economist was running stories about it at the same time, when these studies were coming out around 2015, that if you breed mice in perfectly hygienic environments, they have a lower in a IQ. mouse paradise, basically. No, no germs. They come out with much lower IQs. They're much worse at mazes. They're much worse at facial recognition. They're much worse at remembering which box has the treats and which box has the electric shocks. And there's very strong evidence to suggest that pathogens, particularly respiratory pathogens, that depend on animals breathing on each other, lift the IQ. And there are all kinds of pathogens that very clearly change brain chemistry and change behavior. The grossest ones are the ones that get into ants and get them to climb up to the tallest grass they can find, stick their claws into the top of the grass, stick their ass into the air, and then die. And then the parasite breathes inside the ant and then spreads from the bum as it peels open into the air from the highest possible altitude and other parasites that infect spiders and then get the spiders to build a nest, a web around themselves and then they die, harikiri, and then all of the stuff that's got caught in it, the, the, the little bad guys can eat and then they spread onto the next spider. So we know that pathogens can change your thoughts and the theory was that in mice, not having any kind of flus or colds around uh, pulled away that opportunity uh, for them to get the higher IQ effects. And the reason the cold would want you to have a higher IQ as a mouse is that if they have a higher IQ, they're more likely to live in more interesting, closely knit social webs, and then they're more likely to pass the thing around. And so they speculated, very serious scientists have speculated that the flu and the cold probably net have a boost to the IQ of the human uh, species. And so, you know, although it's kind of uncomfortable, if your kids do get sick, just remember that and, and try not to make them too uh, sanitized because they'll be allergic to peanuts and die anyway. So I like that theory. And I thought COVID would be the great IQ lifter of the human species. And that, yes, we would disagree, but they would, we would disagree in interesting, intellectually curious, generous, like common solutions kind of ways. And it just turns out that we're like flipping beyond the Rubicon of stupid. 
<laughs> you know, Gabriel, I think you may have outdone yourself in this podcast. You managed to drop the F-bomb and then claim that coronavirus is going to make us more intelligent. I think that this is a really good point to transition to the next topic, uh, which I know uh, basically nothing about. It was you who wanted to talk about it. Uh, so please educate me. Uh, you want to talk about students uh, at a universe, at the, in the universities uh, while they have very specific demands. So just, you know. Yeah. Let's okay, so that. my segue into this is that I love the theater. I also love sports, which is a kind of theater. And I've got to say, uh, in high school, again, like we would watch sports matches together all of the time. And there'd always be some guy, and it would usually be me, who if the ref gave one of our O's a yellow card and everyone went boo, sometimes I'd say, no, but guys, it is fair, right? So there's a position for someone to be like that. But sometimes you've, you, you've got to just say boo as well. Like when it's yes. like the last two minutes of the match, it doesn't matter whether it is fair or not. If your owner gets a yellow card, you say boo because that's what caring really means, right? Yeah. Uh, again, it's this like suspension of disbelief. You don't really believe in the rules. You just believe your team is right. That is, I think, the appropriate way at some points now and then to respond to sports. And that's part of what makes it so exciting. Okay, so I love sports. There's no sports. Sports is the biggest like minor key casualty of the COVID lockdown. So what have I turned to? I've turned to chess, which is the last sport which is still having major international tournaments. As a res as a res despite the virus, they're doing it online. Okay? So Magnus Carlsen, who's my age, is the world chess champion, and he's had the Magnus Carlsen Invitational, and there's like 10 or 20 of the world's best players, and they've been playing each other online. Now... And I've been watching all of these matches and it's super nerdy. And yes, sometimes I hate my life. And I imagine Nicholas making fun of me for watching chess matches. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking uh, many of my friends watch chess matches uh, for fun. And I'm just thinking that at the end of the day, the chess nerds are truly the sort of indomitable uh, roach of the human species that they can thrive <laughs> as all of us are dying and without sports, they go on exactly. unblemished. Exactly. <laughs> We go on, we go on. But here's the thing. We don't quite fully go. So there was a match between, I'm going to mispronounce his name, this guy with a, an Italian-sounding surname. I'm going to say uh, Firuja was playing Ding. Uh, Ding was in China. Ding is usually a killer at the end game. Uh, Ding has got the white pieces. Uh, they, they played... 10 matches, five matches each with the white pieces, five matches each with the black pieces. Dings got the white pieces the first game. He's going after Faruja. Uh, he plays really well in the beginning, very risky play. He comes out with a slight advantage in the end game. And then Faruja's internet goes down. No, no, sorry. The first time, Ding, Ding blunders. Ding blunders and Faruja manages to force a draw. Now, what's the issue here? Ding is playing in China. So... The way they agree to the time cycle, he's playing at one o'clock in the morning. And this is a time-heavy game, and he's probably just gotten tired because he makes the kind of blunder that he never makes, even in blitz chess. And so you've got to think that like his, his geographic disadvantage has made a difference. And because he, he makes that mistake, the game ends up being a draw or even a loss, and then that affects the way that all of the other games go, so he doesn't do so well. Then Faruja comes out ahead. Then he's playing against Magnus Carlsen, and he's doing really well. He's got an advantage, but then his internet breaks for an hour, and so they have to call it a draw, even though he was ahead, 
and he was with the white pieces. So now going forward, when he should have won, he got a draw. He has to play more aggressively. Magnus Carlsen takes advantage of that and beats him. And so these two little minor things, and those are like the most obvious examples. There have been quite a few little minor things that have played with people's minds. And they're all really at the edge of their best mind's capacity. So the smallest little differences can make a big difference. One drawed game that should have been a win, uh, one blunder because it's 2 a.m., that can kind of change the whole shape of the games in soccer. You know, you often expect the home team to do a bit better. Uh, looks like we may have lost Gabriel. Now, one thing you have said. Ah, we... Gabriel, Gabriel, no, we lost you there. Uh, you said soccer home team does better. Yeah, so so, uh, I'm, I, so then I asked the question, what does the story about chess have to do with student unions in South Africa? The answer is simple. The student unions across most universities in South Africa have said, if... We will, we will boycott any return to online education in university if you cannot guarantee that every single student is going to have exactly the same experience in the online learning environment. Which is, of course, impossible, actually. Vits, Adam Habib, all Vits students have gotten 30 gigs of data per month to be able to get into their online classes. Students who don't have laptops and can't afford to buy laptops have been sent laptops similar things have been done by like all the all the major universities have made every effort as far as i can tell that's reasonable to try and give students a reasonable chance to participate in online learning now the comeback is literally from one student leader my friend who's a student in the eastern cape he's got his laptop he's got his 30 gigs but he has to walk four miles, and he says four miles, which is an American term. Never forget what the American influence is. He has to walk four miles in order to find a quiet spot with good signal. We will not go back to university. We will boycott classes until such and a time that everyone's going to have the same experience. Now, my two points on that are, firstly, that if the world's best chess players, who are all earning proper money, hundreds $100,000 a year, Playing chess, these guys are like out of a whole universe of people trying to be really good at chess, the creme de la creme. If their best efforts are still being somewhat tinkered here and there by the unfortunate uh, obstacles to seamless online human interaction, then what chance does any real university have with thousands or tens of thousands of students of making sure that every single student has no extra effort that they have to put in. I say you, no you know, chance. First, you know secondly, Sora Ramaphosa's funniest line. Sorry, Nick, let me just finish this. Sora Ramaphosa's funniest line. I thought he spoke beautifully last night. Uh, I've got more to say about that. It doesn't mean he's a good guy, but I thought he spoke beautifully. But when he said, every student in this country is desperate to go back to study. Oh, yes, that was great. <laughs> I laughed. I burst out laughing. I thought uh, that was much funnier than him putting his mask on his eyes. I thought that was the funniest thing I've ever heard our president say. With I agree a straight with face. That is a suspension of disbelief that is fully incredible. 
So, I mean, I often give the benefit of the doubt to people when they're complaining about something. Uh, I just, you know, even if they have a, possibly a bad motivation for it, I, I kind of think, well, they might have that, but they also probably do have something that they're really concerned about. Um, and, you know, you can kind of see some of the point here, right? Because there's obviously people yeah. who are going to have a, a much harder time getting access to the internet. But really, like, my experience of student governance is that it's always... Uh, a bit of a sham to cover for people who don't want to do stuff. I mean, university is the time that people goof off. It's like when the middle class goes and messes about. Um, it was kind of a, a sort of thing that people always would say on, on campus at Vits that the reason that there were protests always just before uh, exams was because the student leaders all were failing their classes and they wanted to find a reason to get extensions and that kind of thing. Uh, and many of them, of course, had actually been held back. Exactly. University is the West's answer, if the West exists, to like, how do we get four years of life where everything is a play? Yeah, there's, there's, it's like, you know, all the benefits of being an adult with almost none of the drawbacks for a lot of people who go to university, um, especially those who hang around for years. Like, uh, what's that, that weird, that weird guy who always is challenging people to debate? Uh, him and then uh, Jamie Mighty. That, mm. that, that strange fellow um, who's been okay. at Vits forever yeah. <laughs> and yet never seems to leave, uh, you know, and is just constantly living in the debate society and challenging people to debates. And uh, I think he may have left now, but he was there for, for many, many, many years. Dude, dude um, my old boss, Adrian Togel, I mean, he's like 65 now or whatever it is. He was at Vits for 10 solid years. And he was always in first-year anthropology. But he spent most of his time, like, smoking dope and hanging out with Johnny Clegg and learning Zulu out in Masinga and, like, fixing up people's VWs and issuing them with a, with a road clearance certificate, selling them for, like, 100 rand, and then, like, living off that for the next three months. Dude, that guy goes to Vits, like, oh, man, I've seen so many students, professors, adjunct professors, emeritus, like, somehow everyone connected with Vits that's, sees him still knows who he is because he was at Vits for so long that his like face is imprinted <laughs> in one of the walls and it's great and he loves it and he loves that about himself and he knows that it is a silly time and that he wasn't a useful person and has subsequently become a very useful person very hard-working dedicated responsible kind of grumpy chap but so you know I, I I've got a lot of time for people who spend their their university years playing the game uh but I do think that when you turn from, well, I don't want to study and I want to mess about and I want to be like, I want to do performance art of life to I am going to shut down the university after the lockdown uh, and not allow anyone else to study because, you know, frankly, I think it's just more interesting to uh, smoke weed and debate the pros and cons of uh, white monopoly capital versus the patriarch. Then you then you've gone from like making your life interesting into making other people's lives a living hell. One of one of the worst things that any, as far as I'm in my in my opinion, one of the worst things that a government or society can do is take students too seriously. Uh, I think university students live in a different world, and they are some of the least value add. No, and, and this is a generalization that's focused mostly, I think, at humanities students, of which I am one, or was one. Um, yeah, me too. It, 
humanity students tend to be some of the least value add people in any society. <laughs> they take they take a lot of resources and they are puffed up with an enormous amount of self importance uh, and are filled with a lot of very bad ideas. Yeah, well, uh, whether it's a jewel or a pimple is kind of up to how everyone else treats us. So we've got about. 20 minutes left of this show. Uh, Gabriel, I know you want to talk about a whole bunch of calculations you've been doing, um, but we've also got a, an issue on uh, our family histories. Do you think we have time for both, or do you want to go for the, the calculations? Yeah, no, no, I'll do the calculations in a minute, and then let's talk family histories. So cool, basically, cool. Um, I think we had a very interesting day on the IRR WhatsApp group yesterday, where France sent us our CEO sent us a piece written by a professor of strategy at Harvard and a mathematician from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and some other guy who started a, a website that like tries to uh, make data visually digestible and compelling. Uh, and, and, and they made this argument in an article that there's a simple formula for calculating the new infection rate of COVID-19 that will help ordinary people understand whether we're turning the corner, whether we're still on the exponential curve phase, or whether we've managed to flatten it through our lockdown activities. And their formula was basically you take new infections today, and you take new infections four days ago, and you divide new infections today by new infections four days ago. The reason they said four days is because that's the average amount of time during which people are asymptomatic and spreading the disease before they go into quarantine and stop spreading the disease. So everyone knows R0, I assume, which is the basic infection rate where there's no herd immunity to speak yeah. of at all. And there's no other conflating factors. This would, this would try to calculate the effective transmission rate, RE, which hasn't been discussed. And it wouldn't be a true calculation of RE, which is a very complicated calculation, the kind of thing you need two computer scientists and seven actuaries to figure out, slash epidemiologists. This would just be a rough approximation of it, but RE is really what you want to figure out. And if RE is one, then you're flat. You're just going to have the same amount of cases going forward. If it's above one, then you're going to grow exponentially. And if it's below one, you're going to, if, it, if, you, if you keep that going, you're going to break it down to zero. So France sent this out said, can you figure it out for South Africa? One of our colleagues quickly figured it out on the last two days. On the last two days, minus the day four behind that, minus day five behind that, the one divided by the other, we were at 0 0.7, shall we say. So it looked yeah. like we turned the corner. It looked like we were shrinking it. I made a table of all of our daily new cases reported and figured out our R value, this rough approximation of the real effective transmission rates since the lockdown, since March 16th. And I found that it ranged between 2 and 16 and 0.5. And that we turned the corner in April, but we turned the corner five times before and then spiked back up. And sure enough, I did that calculation yesterday, did it again today, and I found that we spiked back up because we hugely enhanced the number of tests. The number of tests we did yesterday was much more than the number of tests we did the day before. And generally our test numbers range literally in April between zero tests conducted on three days in April and, and 
somewhere around 8,000 tests uh, on the biggest day. So that calculation doesn't work for us because we don't test consistently. And so then testing ends up being the determining factor rather than the true underlying number of new cases. And I found that interesting and I wondered whether I could make a more complex calculation. If I could do three-day rolling averages or weekly rolling averages, whether that would mitigate for the fact that on some days we test more and some days we test less. I tried that out. Also, it turned out to be a nightmare. The numbers, in fact, got even more erratic. And then I try to think about whether there's a reason for this beyond just the fact that we test more or less on a particular day, because that should be taken into account by the rolling averages. And I think the answer is yes. And here's why. And it's very concerning. I think the answer is yes, because we have roughly three and a half, four thousand confirmed cases of the SARS-CoV-2 virus in South Africa. That is a tiny, minuscule portion of the population. Iceland has done the best random testing on its population. Random testing. Our testing is not random. It's not trying to be random. It shouldn't be trying to be random. Random testing is very expensive. It's not something we can afford to do. Iceland can afford to do it. It's got a small population. It did it. It's a little island. It's an interesting case study, and they did a good service to the world by doing a random test. They found that 0.3 to 0.8% of the population have the virus. Now, if South Africa is anything like Iceland, and 0.3% of the population have the virus, and it would be surprising if we had anything less than that, given the open borders that we had, given the amount of time we had between the lockdown and the initial uh, case being detected. And I think our population is also a bit denser than uh, Iceland as well. Exactly. So, but let's just say on the lowest possible end, we've got 0.3% of our population has the virus. That means roughly 180,000 people have the virus. But we only have three and a half, four thousand confirmed cases. So we haven't even begun to hit the tip of the iceberg of cases that are already around. And that means that we're flying in the dark. And we are in a similar position to pretty much everywhere else, where the number of dark cases and the number of known cases are hugely asymmetrical. The number of unknown cases that are likely out there outnumbers the number of known cases by, you know, the best uh, epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins said two months ago, a factor of three to a factor of 300. In South Africa, that is, you know, we just, we're just sitting in that situation. It could be, yeah, it could be much, we, much more extreme. We, it, it could be worse than that. So the only practical, so I'll finish this up. So basically this was like an interesting experiment. I thought we'd figure out something from this, but once again, as is so often the case, actually being honest and not trying to commit to some political narrative meant that following the numbers indicated one thing, which is how much we don't know. Now, the only upshot from that that I can draw at this stage that is political is that if you look at the number of tests we've done per capita, we are kind of in this weird gray zone. Well, there are we've some kept countries ahead of Albania. Are, we're ahead of Albania. 
we're ahead of quite a few countries. We're ahead of Brazil. We're ahead of there. There are a few countries that are, in some senses, economically similar to us. High inequality, very poor in general, uh, uh, who might try and go either way. But let me just try and sketch out three groups. There are some groups. There's some countries: South Korea, Iceland, Germany, the United States of America, that have been testing very aggressively. That will continue to test very aggressively. That are providing the kind of information that you can only get by testing serious portion proportions of mass populations. The proportion of New York that's being tested, the proportion of hotspots in Germany that's being tested, the proportion of Iceland, the proportion of South Korea that have been tested is very high. And so then you can start getting a sense of overall uh, infection rates. Uh, hotspots 15%, uh, drop spots 0.5%. You start getting a sense, you know, which, and that might sound like a huge range, but at least it's narrower than things were. Imperial College and Oxford were fighting about 50% to 0.005%. So yeah. they are helping the whole world understand this virus better, and they're helping themselves with to, to really focus their responses. Then there are countries that are doing almost no testing. They're just testing people who come to the hospital to see if they've got the virus, to see if they should treat this uh, the same as a, a regular respiratory disease or slightly more cautiously and think about uh, off-label uses of medicines like uh, chloroquine or maybe sunlight and... Uh, yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's countries like Brazil or the Philippines. Yeah. But we're in this middle space where we're spending a lot on testing. I don't know how much, but we've got 12,000 screeners and testers out there at least every day doing the thing, tests coming through. You know, not as many tests even per day as there are testers. That's weird, but never mind that. We're spending a lot of money. I'm not sure that we're doing enough to get the true benefits of being at the cutting edge that Iceland, South Korea, and so on are at. But I'm but we're missing out on the free rider opportunity of like, we won't test much. We're going to try and figure out what there is to know about this virus in terms of what kinds of herd immunity rates you can expect, what kinds of uh, case fatality ratios you can expect, what kinds of comorbidities you can expect, what kinds of severe respiratory uh, uh, support needs you, you can expect from other countries. So it's like we, it's like we compete. So I don't know about this. I'm still trying to figure out. But I, my hypothesis that I want to test, this is not a certainty. The hypothesis I want to test is that South Africa might be in this awkward zone where competing with the Joneses means we're spending a lot of money. But that, like, after the first bit, after the first 3,000 tests, the next 7,000 are not really getting us any real advantage other than kudos from the WHO. Uh and given the economic dire straits we're in, if that hypothesis is correct, then we should think seriously about redirecting our efforts. But if it's not correct, then we should, I think, celebrate South Africa as uh, as one of the standout poor countries who's put in extra effort. Indeed, indeed. Um, all right, for our last thing, let's just talk about something a little bit fun and a little bit personal, uh, which is our family histories. Um, now, this is coming out of the fact that my um, mom has actually been looking into our past and how her family got here and that kind of thing. Uh, and it's very interesting because it gives a little bit of a glimpse into the kind of Wild West South Africa uh, that we used to, that used to exist uh, for, for a period of time from the kind of, um, you know, through most of the 1800s. 
uh, until the consolidation of South Africa under British rule. Uh, South Africa was really a sort of a lot like the American West, uh, a very indeterminate place with a lot of lawlessness, a lot of uh, banditry and gangsterism. Uh, the lines between racial, cultural, ethnic, religious groups were really not that hard and fast. Uh, there was a lot of moving between them. Uh, what exactly uh, did it mean to be black? What did it mean to be colored? Or, or, or in this case, usually uh, something like Griqua. Or what did it mean to be white was often very blurry. Um, and a lot of people lived in similar ways. Uh, some of those... Um, early Boer farms in the early settlements of the Orange Free State and the Transvaal. It's difficult to kind of tell the difference between the lifestyle that some of the Boers lived and the uh, African chiefs who had come before them. Uh, they were very centered around cattle. They were centered around uh, the family. Um, and everything was kind of up in the air. So it's often quite difficult to work out what happened. But my mom's got some interesting insights, uh, which the kind of upshot of is that at least on one side of my family, I seem to be descended from swashbuckling, uh, scummy lawyers and sheriffs and that kind of thing. People who, who you know, when you sort of talk about what profession they're in, oh, they're judges, they're lawyers, you think, oh, maybe they were actually kind of on the side of the law. But uh, it's fairly clear that they were the kind of lawyer who cheats you out of something when he does a business deal with you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I'm so good. Uh, yeah. One of them is a is a chap called uh, Harry Hanger, um, who was a sheriff in Bloemfontein um, in the the late 1800s. Uh, and one of the things we have about him is that he arrested someone in 1884. Um, he's described as coming from an an old mestiz family, which is basically a mixed race family. But we actually have no idea why that description exists because it's not clear entirely who his who his mother was we know who his father was his father was uh, one of the earliest mayors of Bloemfontein actually um, who I'm also descended from who is English uh, not Afrikaans um, which is one of the many ways that things were kind of complex you know we think uh, Orange Free State must have been you know only Afrikaners but actually things were far more complicated back then um, and it's just really interesting to see how my family history is kind of around these uh, shopkeepers and lawyers and things who are all on this in this frontier territory. Uh, their lives are very complex. Um, a lot of them die very young. They have a lot of children, as did a lot of people back in that period of time. Uh, and let's say there, there seems in some cases to have been quite a lot of um, either illegitimate children or maybe something that might look a little bit like a polygamous marriage or at least people, you know, uh, one of the characters in this in my family history is married to a woman and then her sister almost immediately afterwards. And it's not clear if the first sister died and he married the second one or if he married both at the same time. Um, oh, my God. And I think almost all South Africans probably have characters like this in their past. It's, uh, it's always fascinating to see. Uh, I know, Gabriel, you've also got a little bit of an interesting uh, heritage in South Africa. Yeah, I might... My one's useless. Let's talk about my one next time. I want to know about your... Harry, did you say? The lawyer yeah, who Harry. used to cheat people? Well, so uh, oh, uh, Harry, Harry was technically a sheriff. Um, his father was a guy called Edward Samuel, uh, who fought in the Basutu War, I think on the side of the Boers against the, the, the Sutu. Um, and he was part of a, a commando with a guy called Gustavo Adolf Trichardt. 
uh, and he was described as having, quote, a good deal of dash. <laughs> but that uh, is a great, that's a great thing one of the, to say. <laughs> one of the things that makes this really complicated in deciphering the language um, is that, uh, you know, back before passports and IDs and stuff, which is what happened in this world, people used a lot of names for themselves. Um, so my mom has written that uh, we're actually not entirely sure uh, what the, the the sheriff I was talking about's name was because um, on some of the documents it's kind of indecipherable and he went by maybe two names. Uh, there's a story that American immigrants often tell about their family arriving in uh, in the United States and how allegedly their names were changed upon landing to sound more more English, but actually that's not yeah. true. Uh, although people would often of their own volition change their, their, their names uh, to suit the culture that they were in. So you see this often in Eastern Europe where a family has a very Slavic name and then they move into a German area and suddenly their name is German and then they move somewhere else. And American area, then a super American, yeah. And so it's actually kind of weird to think about how we live in a time where actually our identity is extremely regimented. Uh, we have a legal name that is a nightmare to change. Um, people who have multiple names are often sort of as kind of con men. You know, if someone goes by a lot of names, it usually raises red flags. Um, and this is actually not the norm of human experience, as, as far as we know. Are you saying Joe Exotic is more normal than most people <laughs> want to give him Yes, yes, he's the, he's the inheritor of, a, of of the normal way that humanity has lived for the vast majority of his existence, which is just to have a more useful name rather than a more correct name. Uh, what is Joe Exotic's actual name? Dude, I I I don't I don't even want to know. Ah, they sorry, said it Joe. like three. Times. Joseph Allen yeah. Alondo Passage. <laughs> I forgot. I already forgot that. His name is Joe Exotic. That's way more useful for his role as being like a lightning rod of raised imagination. So were we not living in the time of the great pandemic? Uh, you know, this kind of question over how rigid someone's identity, it had been, uh, it had been, you know, come back into the sort of public consciousness and all this fighting over transgenderism um, and how much, how seriously society should take it. Uh, I wonder. I wonder if, perhaps, in fifty years from now, we will be in a world where uh, names are once again unshackled somewhat from uh, from legal documents. Yeah, I kind of suspect. I I think that uh, if 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 our property system is not completely wiped out by Cold War Two between America and China over the WHO from this and Taiwan and all other kinds of things like how do you want to restart your economy do you want to do it in the most autarkic way you can I, I, I think that uh, keeping a very clear register of everything you've ever owed and everything you've ever owned and all the liabilities you have to various states that will be you know and you can think of that as a number behind a name I think that will be kept pretty regimented. And I think that's one of the great advantages that South Africans enjoy 
to unfortunately greater and lesser extents as they emerge from the wild west scenario that we were in the wild south scenario that we were in is that you get a system that keeps track of what do you own what do you owe uh and and what obligations do you have to the state vis-a-vis -vis criminal servitude and so on uh and 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 the more transparent and the more kind of pervasive that list is of stuff that you owe and own the less likely you are to be able to get away with using violence to do deals and the more likely you are then to try and find a better way forward so the bottom line of that is i think that having an identity that's like a number that's connected to property rights and uh travel rights uh freedom of movement rights I think that's good. I think being able to change your name, being able to change your all the other kinds of social identity markers, it should be more fluid. That'd be great. Um, and I, yeah, I think it's an interesting point that it's been more normal for things to be that way in terms of the social identity markers than not. So maybe that's a norm that we'll revert to, but with this like strong underlying uh, protection against violence that comes with. Uh, having stable property rights and also uh, the, the the fundamental unit for creating better credit systems. Definitely. And with um, that, on that very got to call it to a close. The technocratic notes. I think we should call it to a close. Uh, it's it's the sun has set here in the in the wilderness. Uh, the internet seems to be flying. And indeed, internet uh, was flying as uh, at this point, Gabriel's internet collapsed entirely, uh, forcing us to essentially delay the uh, posting of this video by a day. Um, but I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Um, uh, if you are a friend of the Institute of Race Relations, um, we'd like to thank you for your support in these very difficult times. And if you're thinking of becoming a friend of the Institute, please uh, go to our website, irr.org.za and sign up to become a friend of the Institute. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we'll see you on the next episode of Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree.